Chapter 7 of David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David Hume and His Influence on Philosophy and Theology by James Orr Hume on Cause and Effects, Free Will Hume's theory may be said to concentrate itself in his doctrine of cause and effect. He himself doubtless felt this to be the strongest and most original part of his system, and in the later edition of his philosophy he spared no pains in perfecting it. Viewed as a carrying out of his principles to their legitimate issues, his reasonings have all the force of demonstration. They end by depriving the notion of cause and effect of all real validity. It is merely, in Hamilton's terse description, quote, the offspring of experience engendered on custom, end quote. In a familiar passage, Hume divides all objects of knowledge into two classes, relations of ideas and matters of fact. Relations of ideas yield us knowledge which is either intuitively or demonstrably certain. In regard to matters of fact, on the other hand, the one relation which carries us beyond the experience we have and gives us new knowledge is that of cause and effect. A priori argument avails us nothing here. Our knowledge of everything that lies beyond the immediate impression of sense must be deduced by a longer or shorter train of reasoning through this single principle of causation. If, therefore, the spiller of the house of knowledge is overthrown, the whole edifice of our reasonings in regard to matters of fact is brought to the ground. To show, accordingly, that this is how the case actually stands with respect to causation, that there is in reality no rational basis for our belief in the connection of causes and effects, nor any necessary principle connecting the phenomena we so denominate, is the end to which Hume applies himself with all his force. He has to show, first, that the ordinary belief in cause and effect is without rational justification, and second, what the real origin and nature of this belief is. The first point to be established is that the relation of causes and effects is one which is discoverable only by experience. Reason can furnish us with no aid in determining what particular effects will follow from particular causes. No man, e.g., could predict prior to experience, that fire would burn, or water drown him. This must, of course, be admitted, but it has often been pointed out that it evades the real question at issue. This is not whether, before experience, we can tell what particular effects will follow from particular causes, but whether, either before experience or after it, we can believe that any change or event will ever happen without some cause. There is an obvious distinction between a cause and the cause. This Hume must admit, 
for he afterwards assumes that it is possible to strip the causal judgment of its original particularity and erect it into a universal principle. Footnote. This, no doubt, in Hume's case, is an inconsistency. First, his doctrine allows no place for abstract or general ideas, so leaves no room for general principles deduced from particular instances. And, two, the utmost his theory of association will yield him is that antecedents similar to those observed might be supposed to have similar consequence, not that there is a necessary relation between antecedents and consequence generally. And a footnote. What we have found to be true of particular cases, we come to assume will be true of all others. But if we can thus universalize our judgments, then we are able to affirm that there must be a cause even where we are ignorant of what it is. The knowledge of causes and effects being thus traced solely to experience, the question which next arises is, what is there in experience that can generate this idea? When it is asked, says Hume, what is the nature of all our reasonings concerning matters of fact, the proper answer seems to be that they are founded on the relation of cause and effect. When again it is asked, what is the foundation of all our reasoning and conclusions concerning that relation, it may be replied in one word, experience. But if we still carry on our sifting humor and ask, what is the foundation of all our conclusions from experience? This implies a new question which may be of more difficult solution and explication. Quote. There are several difficulties to be got over. 1. Experience gives us only quote-unquote loose and separate events but the relation of cause and effect is supposed to be that of necessary connection. 2. Experience gives us information of those precise objects only which fall under our cognizance. But this does not explain why we should extend this experience to other and different objects. 3. Experience relates only to what has been observed in the past, but the inference from cause and effect is extended into the future. We always presume, he says, when we see like sensible qualities, that they have like secret powers, and expect that effects similar to those which we have experienced will follow from them. Now, this is a process of the mind of which I would willingly know the foundation." End quote. Hume then shows that this inference from the past to the future, however it is to be explained, is not founded on any process of argument. These two propositions are far from being the same. I have found that such an object has always been attended with such an effect, and I foresee that other objects which are in appearance similar will be attended with similar effects. If the inference is made by reasoning, there should be some middle term which connects the two judgments. 
but this, of course, can never be produced. He concludes, therefore, with perfect justice, that the uniformity of the operation of causes and effects, which would enable us to infer the future from the past, can never be proved by argument. It may be questioned, however, whether Hume is not here chargeable with another confusion besides that of constantly identifying the question of a cause with that of some particular cause. He rightly assumes that when we find a cause in nature, we expect it to operate uniformly. The idea of a cause, nevertheless, is not quite the same as that of the uniform operation of the cause. I say, then, he himself remarks, that even after we have experience of the operations of cause and effect, our conclusions from that experience are not founded on reasonings." The experience of the operation of causes, then, precedes and is distinct from the discovery that they operate uniformly. The distinction may be perceived if we reflect on the phenomena of volition, or think of that crude stage in the history of mankind when effects in nature are ascribed to the volition of living agents. Here there is causation, but it is conceived of as capricious and irregular. The ground of our expectation of uniformity in the operation of causes will be investigated later. The main difficulty Hume has to encounter is the apparent existence of an quote-unquote idea of necessary connection in the causal judgment. He treats of this in a separate essay, but it is really the same question as he had previously before him. We infer that the future in natural operations will resemble the past because we have already somehow come to believe in the necessary connection of events. The gist of Hume's theory lies, therefore, in the explanation he has to give of this idea of necessary connection. He first shows that no such necessary connection is implied in anything given directly by observation. He easily refutes Locke's doctrine that we receive the idea from sensation and reflection. What we observe is simply constant succession or constant conjunction of a supposed bond or connection between events the experience of the senses can teach us nothing. Footnote, quote, All events seem entirely loose and separate. One event follows another, but we can never observe any tie between them. They seem conjoined, but never connected. End quote and a footnote. He argues with great force that the idea cannot be derived even from the consciousness of our acts of volition. His arguments on this point are in part valid against Man de Biran and others of the French school who adopt this explanation, and against Mansell, who supposes that we transfer the idea of a cause gained from the power of the will over its own determinations to beings and objects generally. We do know ourselves as spiritual causes, but this recognition already implies the idea of causation, and the legitimacy of the transference of the idea to nature and universalizing of it 
is not obvious. Failing every other explanation, therefore, Hume falls back on custom, in which he claims to find the solution of the problem. When we have had frequent experience of similar conjunctions of events, a connection between the two is firmly established in the mind. The presence of the one event naturally suggests the idea of its usual attendant, and leads us to expect it. This tie, which is purely a connection between our own ideas formed by association, we transfer to the objects and think of it as existing between them. Footnote, quote, Necessity is something that exists in the mind, not in the objects. End quote. And a footnote. Briefly expressed, therefore, the idea of necessary connection among events is the result of custom and association uniting their ideas firmly in the mind. The mere fact of one event following another, in a single instance or in a few instances, would not of itself beget the idea of causation. But when of two events one is found constantly following the other, an association is formed which creates a firm connection in idea, and brings it about that the appearance of the one invariably suggests the idea of the other. In the vividness of conception with which the mind is carried from the one idea to the other consists the nature of belief. With delightful naivete, Hume points out how this tendency is confirmed when we find that the actual order of the world is conformable to the train of our thoughts and imaginations, and speaks of this as a, quote, kind of pre-established harmony between the course of nature and the succession of our ideas, end quote. This searching examination of the validity of the causal idea was, as everyone now acknowledges, productive of the best results in philosophy. First, like Hume's other speculations, it showed men clearly what were the legitimate consequences of certain principles. And second, it prompted them to a reinvestigation of the whole question. For it did not require a great degree of acumen to perceive that the explanation offered by Hume was far from covering all the facts. It labors under the radical defects of seeking to account for an idea the nature and characteristics of which have never been sufficiently examined. Hume does not begin with a careful analysis of what is involved in the notion of cause, but proceeds at once to demand the impression from which the idea is derived. He admits that there is a necessary connection to be taken into account, but instead of first examining the nature of this necessity and then asking, as Kant did, how such an idea of necessary connection is possible, he forecloses discussion by the assumption that, if the idea is not copied from a sensible impression, it can have no meaning or validity. As a preliminary criticism on the theory, a remark may be made on the peculiar place which Hume gives to the principle of custom in connection with it. It is difficult to know how precisely Hume conceives of this principle in relation to the general principles of association. 
whether it is supposed to be distinct or is regarded as only a special case of the latter. At all events, it is described by him in terms which imply that it itself operates as a true cause or force in the mind, determining the connection of ideas. The passage is instructive, quote, By employing that word, custom, we pretend not to have given the ultimate reason of such a propensity. We only point out a principle of human nature, which is universal, acknowledged, and which is well known by its effects. Perhaps we can push our inquiries no further, or pretend to give the cause of this cause, but must rest contented with it as the ultimate principle, which we can assign of all our conclusions from experience." That is to say, in order to make out that causation has no real existence, Hume is compelled to assume a principle of causation operating in the very way he proposes to get rid of. Causation is to mean strictly nothing but constant conjunction of antecedent and consequent. But in order to explain how we come to have a feeling of necessary connection between these two, he presupposes a cause which is not an antecedent, but a quote-unquote ultimate principle of mind, determining the connection of ideas. He disproves causation by the help of a principle of causation, shows the idea to be a fiction by means of a hypothesis which assumes its reality. Similar in effect is his continual use of language which implies the reality of quote-unquote power, force, influence, determination, necessity, at the very moment when he is endeavoring to disprove that the mind has any such ideas. To see how far Hume's theory comes short of an adequate explanation of the ordinary notion of cause and effect, we may begin by quoting two passages from his writings on the nature of this relation. We suppose, he says, that there is some connection between them, some power in the one by which it infallibly produces the other, and operates with the greatest certainty and strongest necessity." Again, quote, when we consider the unknown circumstance in one object by which the degree or quantity of its effect is fixed and determined, we call that its power, end quote. It is implied in these statements that the idea of cause and effect is, as already seen, one, that of a necessary connection, two, that of an objective relation, and three, involves the idea of power. Subsequent speculators who have impugned the doctrine of Hume have assailed it mainly either on the first of these grounds, showing that the confessed necessity inherent in the relation could never be engendered by custom, or on the second, showing that custom and association could never account for the idea of a quote-unquote fixed and determined order of nature. On the other hand, the association school have substantially adopted and defended the doctrine of Hume, Mr. Mill, e.g., resolutely upholding it in his examination of Hamilton, 
under the name of quote-unquote inseparable association for Hume's quote-unquote custom. An intermediate position was occupied by Dr. Thomas Brown, who, while adopting Hume's view so far as it denied the objective connection of events, yet differed strongly from Hume on the power of custom to generate belief in the uniformity of nature. On this latter point, Brown has left many acute remarks, but his own theory is not much better than the one he criticizes. Power, he says, is nothing more than invariableness of antecedents, end quote. This, however, is a simple question of fact. Do men really mean no more than Brown asserts when they speak of power? They mean surely by it not only that one event follows another, has always followed it and will always do so in the future, but that one object or event exercises a determining influence on another, has an efficacy in producing change in the other. This element Brown entirely leaves out. He resolves the idea of cause into that of uniformity of nature, and, after showing that custom could never account for our belief in that uniformity, calls in an ultimate principle to explain the latter, as if that principle were not itself a cause in the rejected sense. Hume is more consistent in the description he gives of power, but likewise holds the idea to be a figment, because copied from no impression. The idea of power, however, which has its root for us in the consciousness of voluntary energy, is not to be thus summarily got rid of. Not to speak of modern systems which find the principle of existence even more in quote-unquote will than in quote-unquote idea, Schopenhauer, Hartmann, and of the preponderant place occupied by the ideas of force and energy in modern science, it is surely a most curious inversion of Hume's position that our latest quote-unquote positive philosophy should be found basing its whole interpretation of nature and mind on the idea of unknowable, quote-unquote, power. The objection to Hume on the ground of the necessity of the causal judgment has been urged by Kant, in connection with his general theory of knowledge, by Reed, Hamilton, and many others, and is the favorite argument of those who adhere to what is called the intuitional school. Custom, it is pointed out, cannot explain the quality of necessity in the causal judgment. It is a judgment we make, apparently, as soon as reflection commences, and not a single fact can be adduced to show that it increases in strength as time goes on. Footnote. Here again, cause is not to be offhand identified with uniformity of nature, as to which our knowledge is clarified and strengthened by experience but no change is ever held to be causeless. And a footnote. It is also a judgment we make universally. It extends to all new events, as well as to those which have been previously observed. Now, as Hamilton remarks, allow the forces of custom to be as great as may be, it is always limited to the customary, and the customary has nothing whatever in it of the necessary. 
but we have here to account not for a strong, but for an absolutely irresistible belief. End quote. Footnote. The matter, however, it seems to us, is wrongly put when rested on subjective necessity of belief. The necessity, rather, lies in the nature of the truth or principle which shines in the light of its own rational self-evidence. And a footnote. The reply of the empirical school to this is that, quote-unquote, inseparable association has the power of engendering, quote-unquote, irresistible belief, i.e. of creating a feeling equivalent to necessity. Mr. Spencer adds hereditary transmission of acquired beliefs as giving them enhanced strength. The difficulties of this explanation, however, become insuperable if we take into account the very stringent limits within which, by admission of the advocates of the theory, the principle of association can operate to generate an irresistible belief. The phenomenon, Mr. Mill says, must be so closely united to our experience that we never perceive the one without at the same time or at the immediately succeeding moment perceiving the other. End quote. Again, quote, no frequency of conjunction between two phenomena will create an inseparable association if counter-associations are being created all the while. End quote. But can anyone affirm that these conditions have ever been complied with in the case of the sequences of nature which we relate as causes and effects? The more carefully, in fact, this theory of Hume's as to the genesis of the causal idea is examined, the more clearly it is seen to abound in assumptions and in consequences. The explanation of belief in causal connection is thought to be found in the experience of constant conjunction of objects and events, but in the first place, every constant conjunction is not a case of causation. There may be antecedents and consequence, invariable so far as our experience goes, to which we yet do not attribute causal connection. To take the familiar example, day follows night and night follows day, but it is not held that the one is the cause of the other. Else, as Reed observes, every case of habitual association would be a case of causation. There is a German proverb, quote, Who says A says B, end quote. But A is not on that account held to be the cause of B. The idea of even invariable sequence, therefore, is to be distinguished from that of causation. But, in the second place, granting, as of course we must, that causes and effects are constantly conjoined in nature, it is certainly not the case that belief in causal connection arises from experience of this constant conjunction. In how many instances do we observe changes of which the causes are wholly unknown to us? Nature is full of apparent irregularities. The cases in which a sequence has been observed so often as to generate a fixed belief through custom are few in comparison with the others. Quote, Among so many unconnected but coexisting phenomena, 
says Dr. Brown, as are perpetually taking place around us, it is impossible that in the multitude of trains of sequence, the parts of one train alone should always be observed by us, and the mind, therefore, even though originally led to believe in causation or original sequence, must soon be rendered doubtful of its first belief when, from the comparison of parts of trains, the expected sequence is found to be different. End quote. Again, speaking of the numberless cases in which we observe a new phenomenon, the same ingenious writer observes, If it be the experience of custom alone which can give us that belief of connection by which we denominate a change, an effect, we are in this case not merely without a customary sequence. We have not seen a single case of it. Yet there is no one who does not believe the change to be an effect as completely as if he had witnessed every preceding circumstance. Quote. This leads to a third remark, that it is not the case that long experience of conjunction is needed to produce the conviction of causation. It is often sufficient to produce the idea of causal connection to see one clear instance of the change. The child, e.g., that burns its fingers at the candle, to use an illustration of Hume's own, does not need a second trial to deter it from repeating the experiment. So in science, one crucial experiment under appropriate conditions may be decisive. We pass to yet deeper ground when we proceed, as the next step, to the second form of objection to Hume's theory, that it can render no account of the objective character of the judgment of causality. The force of this will be apparent in view of what has been said in the previous chapter of our idea of an objective order. On Hume's principles, what we have passing through the mind, or rather what constitutes the mind, is simply a succession of impressions and ideas. Any conjunction or association of these is only a union of our ideas with each other. But it was before shown that there is the broadest possible distinction between the succession of our own thoughts and the objective succession of events in nature, and that a large part of the plausibility of Hume's doctrine depends on his continually confounding these two orders, the order of thought and the order of things, with each other. On any hypothesis, it must be admitted that men do make this distinction between the course of their own thoughts and the objective course of nature. We found Hume himself making the distinction, and even speaking, popularly, no doubt, of the quote-unquote pre-established harmony between them, and there is as little doubt that when we speak of the relation of cause and effect, it is the objective order, not the subjective, we have in view. To say that fire melts wax, that prussic acid destroys life, that a storm wrecks a ship, is more than a description of a succession of impressions and ideas in the mind. It expresses a relation of these objects among themselves, and modes of their actions upon one another, irrespective of the order in which they may chance to be presented to our thoughts. 
In point of fact, the effect may be observed before the cause, or the cause may never be observed at all. Flame causes heat, and other of Hume's illustrations, but I may perceive the heat before I am led to observe the flame. It is not without reason, therefore, that Hume is found constantly exchanging quote-unquote ideas with quote-unquote objects, and affirming of the latter what is true only of the former. But Kant goes deeper. It is essential to Hume's theory of the derivation of the causal judgment that prior to the possession of the idea of causality, we should observe successions of phenomena in a fixed order. It is from observation of their regular conjunctions that the idea is supposed to be obtained. It is here that Kant strikes in with his penetrating criticism. In assuming the existence of an objective world and of orderly succession in that world, you have, he argues, already implicitly supposed the operation of that causal principle which you imagined yourself to obtain from your experience of it. For what is meant by speaking of objects and of a succession of objects in the natural world? To speak of a thing as object at all is, as shown in the last chapter, to give that thing a place in an order or a system which has a subsistence, coherence, and connection of parts, irrespective of the course of our ideas of it. It implies an order in which the parts are definitely related to each other, in which each has its place fixed by relation to the other parts. But such an order already involves, is constituted for our thought and experience through this very principle of causation which we are proposing to derive from it. This does not mean that in the system of nature each antecedent is regarded as the cause of its immediate consequent. But it does mean that every term in that succession has its definite place assigned to it in the order of the whole, and this is only possible through causal relations. The idea of cause may not, per se, imply that of a fixed order but it is indisputable that the idea of a fixed order implies that of cause. Else any given phenomenon would be an accident. It might appear equally well at any point of the series of events. It would not be integrated with the other phenomena as part of an objective system. If this be clearly understood, it is fatal to the acceptance of Hume's theory for it shows that his derivation of the causal judgment from experience of constant conjunctions is an inversion of the actual state of the case. This enables us to give an answer to the question formerly postponed as to the real ground of our belief in the uniformity of nature. Hume wishes to know how it comes about that, having observed causation in a particular instance, we are led to extend this belief in causation to similar and future instances. The simple answer would seem to be that, in default of reason to the contrary, we regard bodies which exhibit similar properties, or, as Hume would say, have like sensible qualities, as being the same in nature.
we therefore expect them to operate in the same way. That judgment may be correct or may prove an experiment to be in whole or part erroneous. Objects apparently similar may really differ in some unknown respects, or the uniformity we have discovered in their action may prove liable to modification, e.g. the expansion of water at freezing point. We thus correct mistakes and enlarge our knowledge of the true laws and constitution of nature. But our confidence is never shaken that, so far as we have discovered the real nature of objects, they will continue to act according to that nature. So, far from reason having nothing to do with the quote-unquote inference we make, it is precisely because we believe nature to be a rationally constituted system that we expect constancy in it. A few words may now be said on the basis of these discussions on the true origin and nature of this idea of causation. Hume seeks to subvert the causal judgment by showing that it springs, to use the words employed in another connection, not from the quote-unquote cogitative, but from the quote-unquote sensitive part of our nature, that is, that there is no ground for it in reason. In truth, as just said, it is reason and reason alone that will yield it. The fundamental postulate of reason is that whatever exists has some rational explanation of its existence, that whatever changes take place, there is always a reason which explains these changes. A mind to which this is not self-evident on the mere statement of it can never have it proved to it by argument. In pure thinking, at least, it will be admitted that there is a rational sequence in ideas. In a geometrical demonstration, e.g., what we have is not simply one idea following upon another and united with that other by association. There is perceived a connection in reason between the premises and the conclusion. In the world of reality, it is not different. We may not perceive the reason of a change, but we have no manner of doubt that there is a reason, and a sufficient one. Either, as in the case of a self-determining agent, the being has the reason of the change within himself, or, as in the case of natural, selfless phenomena, the object is determined to be what it is by something beyond itself. It is this idea of established connection on some rational principle which we denominate quote-unquote necessary connection in nature, a connection not indeed metaphysically necessary, as if the constitution of nature might not conceivably have been other than it is, but factually necessary. Metaphysical necessity inheres only in the rational principle that a cause or reason there must be, when accordingly Hume says that there is never perceived any rational connection between cause and effect, he greatly oversteps the evidence. A man frames, we shall suppose, the plan of a house or design of a machine. Will anyone say that when his plan or design is executed, it is simply a case of one thing following another, and that there is no rational connecting principle between means and end. 
when a writer like Hume conceives a book intended to convey to other minds the idea of a particular philosophical system, will anyone affirm that there is no connection save that of accidental succession between the thoughts of the original author, the book he has produced, and the impression it makes upon the reader? Even in external nature, if the laws concerned in the production of a particular phenomenon are clearly grasped, say, the laws of chemical combination, is it correct to say that you cannot, up to a certain point, give a rational explanation of the effects that are produced? Else, what do we mean by explanation? The result of the whole is that Hume's endeavor to get rid of reason in the sphere of causation is as vain as his efforts to explain the rise of knowledge without a conscious thinking mind, without rational principles of connection among ideas, and without the recognition of an objective world by reference to which our internal states are known to be internal. In closing this chapter, allusion must be made to one other topic directly connected with the subject of causation. None of the great speculators on causation have left out of view the bearings of their doctrine on free will, and Hume likewise has an application of his theory to, quote, liberty and necessity, end quote, in which he consistently reduces all human action to the same law of necessity as prevails in nature. Thus it appears, he says, that the conjunction between motives and voluntary actions is as regular as that between cause and effect in any part of nature, end quote. While he defines liberty as simply, quote, a power of acting or not acting according to the determination of the will, end quote. And at first Hume seems justified, for if causation is a necessary principle of connection among phenomena, how shall volitions, any more than other phenomena, be withdrawn from its scope? One answer that might be given, which is also in part Kant's, is that causation applies only to nature, to the phenomenal world, not to the world of spirit. In the outward world, necessity rules, in mind or spirit, freedom. Dugald Stewart wrote, This maxim, that every change implies the operation of a cause, although true with respect to inanimate matter, does not apply to intelligent agents, which cannot be conceived without the power of self-determination. The obvious fault of this statement is that it does not cover all the facts. It is not true that causation is confined only to the objective world or to inanimate nature. The will itself is a cause and acts outwards on nature, as well as in the regulation of thought and conduct. The principle of causation does not apply only to changes in nature, but to the fact of change as such. In a large part, the involuntary part, of our inward life, in the sensitive nature, the passions, the emotions, the workings of association and habit, the reign of causation is as obvious as in the world of matter. Yet probably it is in this line of what Kant says of causation as a category of nature 
that the real solution of our problem is to be sought. If, as was previously urged, it is the I which is the relating principle in knowledge, that which relates objects in their causal as in other connections, it seems obvious that it cannot itself be treated as one of the objects which it helps to relate. It is above the natural order with its laws of causation. This is viewing the self as thinking, but the same applies to it as acting, as will. In the simple fact of self-consciousness, the self knows itself raised above nature with its law of external necessitation, of determination ab extra. To it belongs the power, which is wanting to external nature, of distinguishing itself from objects without, and from desires and passion within, and of determining itself freely in light of principles and ends. Man, as Kant says, is a being that acts under the representation of ends. This does not mean that the will at any time acts without reason or motive. For every act of a free rational nature, there will always be a why. But it is given to the self to determine itself ab intra. It is a cause which originates action but is not itself an effect. Through unfaithfulness or vicious choice, a man may indeed part with this high prerogative and become the slave of passion. It is the problem of our moral condition that we do find ourselves in alienation from our truest selves and in bondage to evil. But regard it in the light of his essential nature Man's dignity consists in his power of self-determination and in regulation of his life by rational and moral ends. In human freedom, therefore, there is no contradiction of the law of causation, but rather the raising of that law to its own ultimate principle in self-conscious personality. It is but following out the same thought if we come to see that the final explanation of the causal order, even of nature, of the objective system, must lie not in an infinite regress of finite causes and effects, but in a principle on which the whole depends, a principle rational and self-conscious, in Spinoza's phrase, but in a personal sense, causa sui. End of chapter 7